0: Today's program has been brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. For more information, visit www.rt11.com.
1: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org.
2: Hello, you are listening to Speaking Broadly, and this is your host, Dana Cowan. Each week, I interview outstanding people in the food world to discover their unique approach to their lives and careers, how they overcome obstacles, and how they embrace opportunity. Today, I have as my guest a woman who pivoted from an incredibly successful career in book publishing to follow her love of cooking. She launched the Mom 100, which provides awesome recipes for members of Picky families, happy families, all families. And she's also an incredibly prolific writer and spokesperson and a really good friend of mine, Katie Workman. Katie, I'm so happy to have you in that stripy, broken chair next to me. (laughs) Thank you. It's delightful to be sitting with you in the stripy, broken chair. The thing is, I get I get to ask you all these questions that you know they'd be polite to ask as a friend, but they're so much more relevant on air. <laughs>
3: right? It's very. I mean, we have had four thousand twenty nine hundred conversations, and
2: this one will be taped. <laughs> <laughs> so, I when I was thinking about like what is the meaning of Katie Workman and oh, the and, and the work of I was really putting some thought into this. And what is the work of Katie Workman? I I came down to. One salient fact that somehow, unbelievably, I had not thought of before. But it all seems to come together around the notion of family. And I say that because you were born into a publishing family. In fact, your father, Peter Workman, founded Workman Publishing the year you were born. So you were Mm -hmm. Uh, co-born. It's actually
3: (laughs) us. Sometimes think of us as weird, weird twins and like from different like I don't know. Same it's, father, it's a, Same father, for sure. <laughs> the mother is the mailman,
2: I don't know, but like, you know, something like that. But yeah, there's there's definitely a, a connectivity. And so you grew up in publishing, you started your career in publishing, you were at uh, Clarkson Potter for 12 years in marketing, um, and then workman for four as um, associate publisher, And then now you've created these books that are about family, but from a completely different point of view in doing the Mom 100. So when you think about the role of family in your life, like, what do you think of? Well, it's interesting. I
3: think that um, that is an absolutely accurate theme to pick out. And then it's sort of... (laughs) (laughs) you. What are you talking about? (laughs) Um, I think that it actually sort of has a couple different like tentacles to it one is that family for me is actually the family you know born into you know nuclear family the family that like my husband my kids but I also very much feel like that there is a created family like I have very much think of my close friends as family like that that is if anything like I I have relationships that I think of as incredibly familial when there is no blood tie or no marital tie but that's just they're sort of have the same depth of importance to me um and then the other piece of it I think that when I think of like what ties stuff together for me and going back to family momentarily is also just the notion of feeding people which is just sort of a a constant and if I anything that I'm cooking or creating or writing is always meant to sort of end up feeding somebody because the exercise of it I mean my Gary and the boys were away for five days recently I did not cook one thing I ate popcorn I ate leftovers <laughs> I ate like shitty frozen oh am I- Oops. you can say shitty oh shitty yay um, uh, you know I just n- nibbled my way through the days and because to cook without somebody on the other end
2: of the plate has no interest for me whatsoever wow because for some people cooking is a practice cooking is a meditation you know cooking is an nope end- <laughs>
3: I mean, I actually, I mean, I love, love, love cooking, but it's all about like the sharing it with someone and and possibly the slightly like neediness of having somebody say, like, oh my God, this was so good, or, you know, thank you for making that for me. It's something about the, you know, the exchange the, over feeding somebody. Or the feedback. Right, right. <laughs> well
2: done. Thank you. <laughs> So when let's just start at the the beginnings when you um, you were growing up and you were surrounded by books constantly and the creative life did that call to you in some way what what were those dinner table conversations I, I I'd love to know <laughs> um, yes I mean there was books everywhere uh, books having to
3: do with um, you know, that my father published, but um, also just, you know, fiction and biographies. Like there's just the walls were lined with bookshelves. The bookshelves were filled with books. There were books (laughs) piled everywhere. Um, You know, reading was important. Books were important. And food was really important. And my father published cookbooks amongst many other books, um, early huge successes such as Silver Palette Cookbook and then the ensuing Sheila Lukens and Julie Wasso books and then many more Sheila Lukens books and then other very well-known cookbooks and very well-respected cookbooks, but um, I really, the the I read cookbooks, and I it's sort of not that unusual now, I guess, that you know people do, and cookbooks are written to be read in different in ways that were different than than they used to be. Um, but I, at night in bed, was more often with a cookbook. Why is that? I don't know. I don't <laughs> know. I don't know. I was so interested, and then the silver palette was in particular so important. I literally taught myself how to cook by cooking my way through that book. Again, like way before, I mean, there wasn't an internet. It didn't occur to me to blog or, or even journal about it. You know, I just, it was the way I taught myself how to cook. My is mother. that because your
2: mother didn't cook?
3: She was a good cook. She is a good cook, but she was not a teacher cook. And she wasn't a, a. I and mean, we do cook together now for the holidays, but she wasn't a, let's all come in the kitchen and make something together. It was sort of like she did her thing and then I did my thing and then I was always getting into trouble for not cleaning up properly. That was actually (laughs) one of my earliest memories is my mother lifting up the toaster oven constantly where I had swept all the crap underneath (laughs) it and being like, this is not clean. So I was always shoving things, you know, underneath things. Um, So I was a messy cook. But um, anyway, I I taught myself how to cook. I made pasta from Marcella Hazan's you know, Essentials of Italian Cooking. It was, like, that seven-page recipe with the line drawings, and I followed it, like, just painstakingly. And, you know, connecting dots now at my ripe old age, it's like, huh, I asked for a typewriter when I was 10, a pasta maker when I was 12. I got a Cuisinart for my graduation gift. It's like, you know, the
2: dots aren't all that, you know, obscure to connect at this (laughs) point. But So you... We're cooking from these great cookbooks. You had a close proximity to them, which means some of those authors you knew. Um, In the case of Marcelle Hazan, she's quite daunting. Mm -hmm. Uh, And years later, you've written uh, two cookbooks of your own. And what was that like just thinking about, you know, the heritage of cookbooks, like what they mean? Um, And how did you think about how you could contribute and, you know, add your own voice to that?
3: I think, I, I don't know that I would have gotten there like it's, it's interesting because I wrote these books and it was it sort of started in a very casual way and I think if I had overthought it or like allowed myself to be like intimidated like what am I going to add to the pantheon you know like <laughs> where is my where you know what is the role my cookbook will play and you know generations to come I just would have that would have paralyzed me and I would have just crawled into a ball and, you know, rolled under the couch along with the breadcrumbs that I had <laughs> swept under there. But um, my, um, the longtime editor at Workman Publishing, which is a company my father, Peter, started, who I've known for my entire life, literally. She is retiring this Friday oh after 43 years. Wow. So an amazing person that I've known my entire life, editor of Silver Palette, Stephen Reikland, Cake Mix Doctor, I mean, like, you name it, many, many, many cookbooks. She, I, at that time, was an online editor for a recipe website, and I had been writing the newsletter and for, you know, two years, the weekly newsletter, and it was popular and was getting good feedback, and I had been writing for some other websites. And she called me up and took me out to lunch and said, I think you should write a cookbook. And I said, uh, I, I was, sl- frankly, I was slightly taken aback. I was surprised. And then I had had the idea for the Mom 100 in my brain, but more in the sense I was thinking, somebody should write a cookbook. <laughs> somebody should write a book that has like 100 recipes that every mom needs in her back pocket because it was, my kids were younger then and it was that same you know, no matter how adept you are in the kitchen, no matter how much you love cooking, no matter what you know, you still stare at a package of chicken breasts and think, Oh God, I cannot make the same thing. And your kid still comes home and says, Oh, there was a bake sale tomorrow, I forgot to tell you. I signed you up to make brownies. (laughs) And you still like, you know, want your kids to eat more fish and more vegetables. And so all many parents face these similar day in, day out things. So I had this idea but I really was thinking, like, it, somebody should write that. And so <laughs> she, she said at lunch, do you have any ideas? And I said, well, this one idea. And she said, I love it. And
2: uh, write a proposal. And I did. And um, As I recall, you actually had to negotiate with your father for the fee. It was... That I, sounds... Awful. <laughs> that awful. It sucked. <laughs> um, I actually didn't negotiate with
3: him, per se, but I... She she brought the proposal. Other people at Workmen really loved it. He, I think, I think partly out of nervousness and also uh, he might not have like really gotten the idea right at the beginning, but he was resistant. And but Suzanne fought for it and said, This is we're pub- we're publishing this book. And she got, he finally agreed, and she she made an offer, which was Paltry, and I said like, oh, can you do a little bit better? And she said I could probably go up like you know a few thousand. I was like okay, and accepted the offer. And that night, bizarrely, he was coming over to dinner. My parents were coming over to dinner happenstance, and I remember he was lying on the couch, and he was reading the newspaper, and I was cooking dinner. And at some point, I said, um, I. I guess we're publishing a book together. Like, <laughs> did you know this? And uh, he sort of went, yep. And I don't think he looked up from the paper. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> it was just but- like, I think he really was, and we really did want to try to keep as much as possible this church and state thing, because it's really weird to have your father publish your book or publish your daughter's book. Or, But um, he was incredibly hands-off during the entire process um, until it was coming out, and then he really got it. So he was. That must have been gratifying. It was very (laughs) gratifying. This was not. This was a man from whom a compliment was a big deal. Yeah, yeah.
2: They did not grow on trees. No, no. So you um, spent well at least a decade and a half uh, in publishing. Yeah. uh, Much of it in marketing roles.
3: Well, I started as an editor. I was a cookbook editor. Um, You know, I started as an editorial assistant to somebody who was primarily a cookbook editor, and that was intentional. Who was that? Pam Krause. Oh, my gosh. Pam Krause hired me. Hi, Pam. Hey, Pam. Hi, Pam. We love you, Pam. (laughs) Still one of my best friends to this day. Uh, She hired me right out of college, and I was her assistant, and uh, she got me promoted fairly quickly, and I was on my own as a cookbook editor um, in fairly short amount of time
2: publishing wise. And then do you think that there's a knack? Like, do you think there's a, a you know, a genealogy connection knack to finding a story in terms of like hereditary, like from my dad kind <laughs> yeah. of thing. It's, um, or do you feel like you were looking for different things? Cause Workman did great packaging. You are a genius at coming up with the ways things should go together. Well, hmm. um, I, Gosh, I mean, yes. I mean,
3: I you know, people often say, you know, oh, publishing is in your blood kind of thing. And I, I can't say that I would argue with that. I can't say that I don't get that or I don't think that's not true. And, um, you know, you do come – you know, even if you're an avid reader and from a reading family, not necessarily yeah. a publishing family, you get to understand the importance very quickly of voice, right? Because uh-huh. a point of view, voice – if you – Especially, increasingly so, and you can say the same things about social media, you can say the same things about any sort of art form or anything that has to do with storytelling in the slightest, which is that if you don't have a particular point of view that's truly true to who you are, um, if, you know, people will say, oh, I want to write a book, what kinds of things sell? Well, bad way to go about that, you know, like, you know, it's, you know. Yes, obviously, you could say, oh, you know, what's the next instant pot? And I want to try to, like, get on that bandwagon. So it's not impossible to try to suss things out from a more commercial or mercenary or marketing point of view. But if you want to write a book that is going to reach people in a certain way, other than just be sort of a perfunctory, you know, useful thing, then it's going to be people reacting to how you think, how you write, how you express yourself. Um, it's gotta be, it's gotta come from a place of pure honesty. It can't be manufactured. And, um, that's sort of true of everything. a <laughs> universal truth. And then when it comes to writing, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, you know, that, that just becomes critical. And then the other thing to layer on it is like, if you're not passionate about what you're writing about, it is a slog of a process and it will come across in your writing your audience will smell that in a second and why are you wasting your why why would you ever want to spend your time writing a book is a really 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 hard thing to do and if it's not something you feel passionate about then it's just
2: fairly joyless okay that's bad so you <laughs> so you um, were a cookbook editor mm-hmm. um, and then in marketing I was marketing. in marketing I did
3: do the get involved with the marketing side of things which you know again would be something people would tie back Peter was sort of a genius. Marketer, And I don't know. How much do you know is like, oh, this comes from, you know, like it's very hard to parse it out.
2: Yeah. And-, and you're so much, I mean, in talking about voice, one of the great things about all the things you write is that they sound like you. I mean, they're, they're funny and they have so much personality and you really sound like you're sitting next to me. So when I'm cooking through something, even an instruction like, you know, Watch out for putting. Be sure to put the cheese on top because if you fold it in, it's going to be a mush. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah. your your writing has so much um, has so much character to it, which you were one of the very first readers of
3: the manuscript, and one of the very few readers of of an early manuscript. And I remember, it was actually, you know, what I'm thinking of now because I was already being very voicey, but you were just like more voice, it's like more cowbell, <laughs> like Saturday Night Live. You were
2: like more, more, more. Well, you have you have this gift. Uh, food writing can be so dreary mm-hmm. um, because it can be. Just all cliches, right?
3: It mean, can be cliches. It can be sanctimonious. It can be holier than thou. It can be precious. It can be uh, dry. It can be a earnest. lot of Yeah. Oh, earnest. God. Yeah. Worst. Yeah. Yeah. I just got. I'm sorry if this person is listening, but I've been interviewing new assistants, and I actually have been getting like, you know, lots and lots of applications, and one of them was like. What my happiness is when I'm floating through the halls of the green market, the sense of tendrils pulling at my nostrils, my hands immersed in the verdant green of the mescal
2: I was like, ooh, ha.
0: <laughs> it made me
2: very anxious. Yeah, let, let's cut some of those words. out. That's yeah. um, bad. So um, I just want to circle back for a second to this marketing and how um, – and how you think about that? Because there are people who believe that marketing is at the root of all success at this point, and you mm-hmm. um, you're so successful across so many channels. Like what is it that you learned inside a marketing department or leading one that you feel is just useful for people to know? That is a big um, question. Um,
3: it just it's it's funny. I it just I guess always things come back and I I feel like I'm going to be a complete broken record on this to say something genuine because you know yes there are tricks of the trade in, in different channels like take Instagram for instance right one of the biggest food marketing vehicles of our time at this moment and knowing which hashtags to use how many hashtags to use who to tag in your photos how often to post when to post what kind of pictures work how you know there's there's tons of stuff you can study away and there are definitely things you can do that are helpful but in the end you have to think about when somebody is looking at Instagram what will pull that what is their reaction going to be towards you know what because when you're looking at Instagram you know what 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 are you drawn to and and in the end it, it does come back to something genuine right whether it's somebody posting something that's like a little behind the scenes or, you know, a little self-deprecating or, um, you know, saying something funny in the caption or or something just beautiful, right? Beautiful, beautiful. And the cheese pull never hurts. (laughs) That's the moral of the story. You can incorporate a cheese pull, forget everything I said before. (laughs) That's the secret to life.
2: (laughs) You're done. Yeah. Um, So how hard was it? to make that decision to leave publishing, which you knew so well, and then be your uh, be on your own? It was definitely one of the
3: hardest decisions I've ever made in my life because at that point, as you well know, I was working at Workman. My father had urged me to go into book publishing, saying, you know, you love food, go into cookbook publishing. It would be fun for you. And I have very severe food allergies, um, and... So the sort of thinking was like, gosh, going the traditional, like, I'm going to be a chef or I'm going to be a cook route would have been more challenging, and I was unsure of myself enough to sort of let him urge me into a cookbook publishing career. One thing led to another. Suddenly, I was at Clarkson Potter for 12 years. Not unhappily, but there was this big chunk of time, and this was my area. At that point, Peter had been lobbying me to come to Workman, saying, you know, Sort of like, well, if you're, it wasn't. Or if you're going to be in publishing like I might like as well do to, it here. Yeah, but it was, you know, was something Why are you competing that. with me? <laughs> more, more of that like, I think the real hope was that I would love it enough to want to continue to doing his, you know, continue his company on. And I went because I didn't want to say no, and I didn't want to have regrets about not going. And I was there for four years, not unhappily. Uh, loved the books. Loved the people such and you know it, it it's another family for me it completely and totally is but all of a sudden i was realizing that i was about to become a book publisher and in 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 the end that was never what i wanted
2: to be how was it just saying no to peter because that is the crux of it right it's not just that you left publishing which you had yeah. done for
3: i left my dad's company and i said i so i i did it in the form of a letter because i couldn't trust myself to speak the words without overwhelming emotion. And I basically wrote a letter to him explaining that I was going to leave. I was leaving book publishing. I was leaving Workman. And I was going to go try to figure out. In the end, I, I I remember expressing it. I was like, I want to find something that brings me as much satisfaction and joy as this has brought you. And, so, and I can't do that and be here. So so I did, and it was, it was, and I made a drink date with him for that night. I put it in his book knowing that, like, oh, calendar, I yeah. gave him the letter saying, like, it's not that I don't want to talk to you, I just, you need to read this first, and then we'll talk, so. And I, my mother, who worked there, too, at the time, I remember she, and I had warned her that this was happening, <laughs> so like, right before, so that she would not, it would, you know, be a little prepared, and, uh. And he, he walked into her office and apparently said, like, this is a very good letter. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I wrote a good letter. But he was still, he was sad and he was disappointed. But he was, then then he was very supportive. I mean, he was supportive. And I think probably up until the time
2: he died, I always thought it would change my mind. So, you know, uh, but. And did his, I mean, he died in 2013. Did mm-hmm. his death pull on you as if. I should have made a different choice.
3: No, not not in the slightest. I never really look back. I'm 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 really good with this. My mother owns the company. I'm still involved with it. It's thriving. Um, my uh, a very I was actually if I when I think about all of the, the pieces of this, it was actually a really great thing that the book came. The book came out in spring of 2012, and he got sick. Uh, with glioblastoma a few months later and then died six months after that so he he died pretty much it was like almost like a year to the day after my book came out but and the last six months were you know he was very ill and having surgeries but the first six months he got to sort of see the book and I I actually it was it's really a, like in terms of sort of closure or Or regrets or non-regrets. Like, I'm very glad that he got to see the book. And I'm very glad that he sort of, he was very proud of it. He was very, he was proud of it. And, um, you know, again, not a man who, you know, lavish with the old compliments. (laughs) (laughs) So so I think he,
2: he got to see what I, you know, some of what I wanted to do. I think that makes a huge difference. I remember my my father who died when I was... You were so um, young. Well, I was 32, so I wasn't that young. I wasn't that young. But, um, you know, he, I think, felt responsible for certain things in my life that, you know, I was such a daddy's girl. He's like, as long as I'm alive, you know, are you ever going to find... A husband, and I'm like, oh, you don't have to die for me to find a husband. <laughs> like, that's a little extreme, dad. It's <laughs> really just too much, but um, oh my gosh, but wait, how old were you when you met Barclay? Uh, I was 36. Okay, so yeah, there was a, a chunk of time, um, in between there, and so my current husband, my, my <laughs> only, my only <laughs> husband, my, hey,
3: Barclay, <laughs> hi, Barclay, you're still in the running,
2: buddy. <laughs> <laughs> um, Never got to meet my father, which is which is a shame. But yes, I also feel yes, like yes. I became the editor in chief of Food and Wine when I was thirty four, and so my mm-hmm. father missed that, and oh. he would have he would have loved, loved that. You know, he just would have been so. He was already proud of me, but yeah. that would have just been yeah. great. Yeah, and I had you know friends of his write me letters just saying your father was so proud, but this would have really made him happy. Yeah, um, and there's and it's funny. No matter
3: how many years or decades go by, there are definitely, there's always certain things, and this is true of every child and every parent, mother, you know, anyone who's not there any longer, there are certain things that you wish you could tell them. And it doesn't matter how much time has gone by because you know that
2: that particular thing would have made them really proud or really excited. Right. And even though I actually, I believe in, you know, um, the essence of people surrounding you. Yeah. So there's some sense in which your father, my father, has a sense of what's going on and th- that satisfaction. Yeah, um, yeah th- those moments when I just feel like, oh, that'd make him so, like, he'd get such a kick out of yes, this. Yes, that's a good way to put
3: it. That's, like, in the nutshell what often, I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes it's pride, sometimes it's this, but sometimes it's just, like, he'd get such a kick out of this is a great way to phrase it. Yeah. So um, that was well, my AP uh, column, I will tell you. And that was actually Anne Bramson, who you also know, longtime, wonderful, extraordinary editor cookbook editor you know thomas keller's editor um when i got the weekly ap column she just came up to me she's like peter would have well she said peter would have died which is sort of <laughs> but she just was like <laughs> because, because he actually it was funny because he used to sit in meetings when something got picked up on the ap wire any publicity for any of the books he would be like, and it just keeps going and going and going because <laughs> AP just is on the wire, and people can pick it up, and it, things run in many, many papers in many, many cities, and over many, many months, if not years. So it's sort of this like gift that keeps on giving, and and it had never occurred to me that
2: that I forgot how much he loved AP for this. So and now that you're writing for them, that's just like it's so sweet. And he knows it somewhere. With that, we're going to take um, a commercial break, and we will be back with more of Katie Workman and Dana Cowan. That's me on Speaking (laughs) Broadly.
0: The following program has been brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Root 11 Potato Chips dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate. Incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Route 11 Potato Chips believes comfort food should be just that. Know where your food comes from. For more information, visit RT11.com.
2: Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly. Today, my guest is Katie Workman of The Mom 100. She also happens to be the only person who I've shared pizza with while... um, talking to all of you. So I don't know, Katie, there's a first for everything. I know it's very exciting and it's very, very good pizza. <laughs> I mean, if you're at Roberta's and you're not you're never eating the pizza in the um, podcast room, like what are you
3: doing? If here? you don't know what the podcast room is in Roberta's, you are sitting in a glassed in room watching people eat pizza <laughs> <laughs> while you're not eating pizza and then that just can only go on for so
2: long. <laughs> and then it must change. Yes. So um, we were talking about and there's a Bloody Mary out there. <laughs> I know. That has not made it into no, the, the studio yet. Maybe next time. Yeah, next time. Uh, we were talking about your first book and the timing of the first book, which was so extraordinary because it was in 2012. And you published at Workman Publishing with your, um, at your family's publishing house, weird as that is, and great as that was. And then your father passed away a year later having the opportunity to see you succeed and to see how you are taking your life in a new and um, different direction from the past years when you had been on the um, editor marketing side Mm -hmm. of books. So when you decided to devote yourself to cooking, you really didn't know exactly where it was going to take you, right? So... You decided to leave because it what leave Workman Publishing because it wasn't fulfilling you. You were- went to find what would fulfill you, mm-hmm. and how did you sort out the thing that would become your next phase? I mean, the is that English? Like yes. you, ha- you had a job and then you didn't have a job. <laughs> how did you figure out
3: how to like make your next job? Yeah, it was. Sc- I mean, it was very scary to leave without a job, which is what I did. And then I ended up working at this online recipe website, uh, which I did for a couple of years. It was a startup and very challenging, and I learned a lot. And then during that time was when Suzanne approached me about writing the book. So I started writing the book and then phased out of the uh, phased out of this online company. And then, and then just things started to just stack
2: themselves and evolve. Nothing stacks itself.
3: Nothing stacks itself. I, so how it, did you do that?
2: And, <laughs> and that, like how much thought went into it and how much of it was like one foot in front of the other? Like, I like to cook. I'm going to have people over. I like to write. Let me see if I can write. I mean, because these yeah. were all new things to you yep. because you would had a, a career doing something Right, on the else. other side of the desk, yeah.
3: basically. So, um, I'm, I mean, I'm... I am a person with a lot of energy, and I'm a person who doesn't really do hanging out or sitting still or, like, w- not much. <laughs> I'm not good <laughs> at not doing not much. So there's, like, I guess it's sort of constantly, like, oh, you know, what if I tried this, and what if I met this person? And um, just everything, just, like, if something was going to lead to something, like, I would sort of, like, e- sort of, I guess, eagerly follow the thread, like, walk keep going down whatever path was sort of like opening or you know, if there, there was a door sort of looking into the door and if there was... And it was, um, you know, I had obvious... I mean, I had a lot of connections in the food world, like you, for instance, right? And, um, you know, and Pam and, you know, Jennifer Baum and, all you know, lots of people who in lots of areas of food, friends who, um, who were... Helpful, and I just knew, you know. So, so I mean,
2: you had a good foundation. I had a good foundation. There are a lot of people that you could reach out to. Jennifer Baum does PR. Yep. Pam Cross was the editor with whom you worked, and Pam, like you know, Pam was Ina Garten's editor. So, like getting
3: a quote from Ina Garten for my book, I mean, yes, I Ina Garten would never have given me quotes for my books had she not felt that way, felt strongly positively about them. She would never do such a thing. But I could get to Ina Garten. So, you know, I there was years of foundation that that were in fairness um helpful to me um i i you know again like if, if if people didn't like what i did like it just it would have only gone so far you can't you can't make uh success out of just knowing people
2: i love the general de Laurentiis um blurbed you
3: oh giada that's and that was through pam too because um giada uh it was very cute, actually. She, Pam had asked her to read the manuscript for a quote, and she was like, you know, you keep talking about her, and Katie this, Katie that, but I've never met her. Make her come here. She was shooting in New York with Pam for this online magazine that they were doing, she was like, she's like, why doesn't she just come here so I can meet her and you can stop telling me about her? Wow, I love that. <laughs> yeah, it was really cute. And so there, I and off I went to, you know, and hung out with her for the day or, you know, for the part of the shoot. And, um, you know, that's... And, and and then she, you know, again, she really liked the book because she has a daughter. Um, she has a
2: great relationship to the type of food that you do because does. it's, um, her food is quite simple and direct and your food is direct as well with a point of view. I mean, each of you has a, a different point of view, which makes it easier for her to blurb you. Yeah.
3: <laughs> and then there's just like, and I feel like there are a lot of really, I feel like I, over the years, have gone to, if if there's something I can do. I'll do it, not necessarily knowing. Oh, this X will lead to Y because you never know what X is going to lead to. But I go to an IACP, I meet an editor. Suddenly, I'm writing for Cooking Light. I go to um, a blogger conference and um, meet somebody who you know works at, at a brand that I really love. I, you know, we start communicating, and then I'm developing recipes for that person. So it's like you do have to be proactive. You have to follow the thread, but it's also like I wouldn't go up to somebody who worked at a pan company I didn't like, and be like, I love your pans. I want to, you know. But then well, usually I'm like, oh, look, you actually have three pictures of your pan in my cookbook. And they're like, oh, you know. What a good partnership this would what be. What a good partnership this yeah. would be. But I
2: think it's sort of putting yourself in uh, in places where yes. good things can happen. Yes. And having a lot of energy yes. towards that. I mean, as you say, you definitely don't lack for or energy or ideas once you meet somebody or right. charisma that would make them sort of want to work with you. So, you know, anyone who's looking what to do next, just find some charisma <laughs> and put yourself out there. What is the charisma stuff? No, but, it's, but it is I mean, I, in, in a nutshell
3: what you just said about putting yourself in places where things could happen and not necess- not predetermining what thing you want to happen. Right. Because that's, I think, a little bit futile and possibly self-sabotaging in some way but i know every time i've gone out to tape something meet someone gone to a conference something interesting has happened and i probably couldn't
2: have predicted any single one of them right and you're open to the you're sort of open to the yeah. universe so when you were con- you were in a that transition because you were working but it also wasn't the thing It wasn't the thing. Um, you know, you woke up in the morning and you panicked. You woke up in the morning and you, and you said, like, I'm going to do nine other things because this isn't the thing. What did you do? The first, so I, I really wasn't working, I guess, for about
3: six months after I left Workman. I had, like, a couple little freelance things here and there, but I was nowhere near the this is the thing. Um, and it was very disconcerting. And I will tell you, it's so funny because... I remember, you know, people, I have many friends who work, and I'm thinking about women specifically, but but both sexes, many friends who work and many who don't. And the ones who don't, you know, often are doing really interesting things in terms of, you know, they're photographers or they donate a lot of time to their school or some a charity that they really believe in. So there's a lot of very good ways to spend your time if working and or earning money isn't a priority for you, for for whatever circumstances. But there I was for the first time as a non-working person, first time in my life, and I, when my kids were, they were little and they were in school, and I had, like, I remember just, like, being very... Suddenly attuned to like all the dynamics of like pickup, right? Like all that <laughs> shit. Where like you know, it's like the nanny or someone's picking up, and like somebody's kids are making play dates, or like two mothers, like three mothers are talking. And you don't know anyone. You're standing there with this like idiotic, pleasant smile on your face, waiting for your kid to come out. Like, and all of that that the that world was like. It just remember feeling completely unplugged from it, and um and not like I even wanted to be plugged into it, but it was like. Suddenly, that was like, that was sort of the shape of the day for a little while. Not that I wasn't having conversations or thinking or looking and, you know, exploring things, but it was just, it was, it was, it was, I was, I was unmoored for, that was an unmooring situation for me. And then
2: you, you re pretty, <laughs>
3: you <laughs> sailed out of that. I say, yes, it wasn't. It was like, <gasps> because I, you know, I remember standing there and, you know, there was times where I'd be working and could pick up my kids too, but... It, but there would just be like a lot of conversation. This is gonna come across as super judgmental. And I'm already apologizing for it. But I remember there just be enormous amounts of conversations between people who are picking up their kids about like how the tile came in from Morocco for the kitchen and it just like they couldn't you know, it was never the shade of blue that the contractor had said and the other and, you know, and the other person was going like oh, that's terrible I was like ah. <laughs> I <don't know>. like, <laughs> maybe not so bad. Maybe not. The world's journal terrible. Like you know, like that's like you know, it's, it just it just was. I was I did not feel comfortable,
2: and I didn't I didn't feel like I belonged to a world. I, I you know I was I was, and, and so you went you went in in search of that. So the the book that you proposed mm-hmm. uh, to Suzanne Rayfer, the editor, mm-hmm. uh, turned out to be the Mom One Hundred. You cook yes. for your kids. You cook for everybody. Mm-hmm. You cook for me when I had cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, you're an amazing cook. What? I remember,
3: remember, like I, I would be asking you what you wanted. in The beginning, you were like, "Oh no, you don't have to. Anything's fine." And I was like, "You know, I'm going to make something. It might as well be something you really want." And then you, then you were great. You got like really specific. I remember
2: there was an orange phase. You were like, "I want squash and sweet potato." <laughs> like, I, I, when I think of it, I just like flash to orange things. Also, that's so weird. Like I feel like there it's was funny. there was the beta quarantine portion <laughs> of your <laughs> treatment. <Exactly. laughs> thank you for that. Still, thank you for that. But. um What is it like having the book sent around being a mom? Because, in fact, the way that your life sort of developed, yes, you are a mom, and yes, you have awesome, smart, funny children, but you are a working person, and then you flipped over, and that mom world's very specific.
3: It is, but, um, and I guess... You know, and I I had like, these weird moments of, like, do I want to call it the Mom 100? But that was just, that was how I thought of it. That was the original shape or impulse of the book was, you know, and, as I say, very bluntly in the beginning of the book like you know the, you mem- remember that perfume man in the 80s like the woman you know she's making shit in the pan and like her husband's coming home and like you know she's never letting him forget he's a man and like <laughs> oh my god like what a load of crap and you know um but the rest of us are standing there in the supermarket looking at chicken breasts and wrapped in plastic wrap and thinking like oh god what am I gonna make tonight and um and also just the reality of like you know you know, on one end of the spectrum, oh, my little Johnny is such a good eater. He just loves sea urchin, you know, and that's obviously <laughs> in a sp- pressure, a super precious part of the world that, you know, my life butts up against. And then on the other side is like, oh, God, you know, the most most people, my kid won't eat anything but chicken nuggets, the white food thing. You know, like how do I get my kids to eat fish, et cetera? Or, you know, I don't have that much time or how do I plan or, you know, what can I make ahead? All that stuff. So the majority of people again as I said in the book who deal with this are moms. That's just you know do do the stats, you know, take a poll. That's just the reality of it, good or bad. So that's how it got called the Mom 100. 100 recipes every mom needs in her back pocket. And you're right, I did in a sense that was that was the the first book and then became the name of my blog and certainly has become sort of in essence like the core part of my brand. I now write a lot about, like, just in general, feeling comfortable in the kitchen, feeling like good about yourself, you know, having some things like under your belt, entertaining with happiness and ease and comfort, and, um, you know, just life being happier in the kitchen in general. Um, so, and in a sense, that was really the base of the Mom 100 to begin with, and it kind of happened to end up being about families and kids, but it was really about. Don't take yourself so seriously. Don't take the whole thing so seriously. It's annoying when people say like cooking isn't rocket science because it's that's such a like repeated boring thing. But it isn't, (laughs) and you know, and um, you know, and also just that sort of sense of like trying to like unbuckle ourselves from the constant flow of, you know, you read about this and this. There's this E. coli scare, and 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 should you do organic? And what are the Dirty Dozen? And um, what are the Dirty Dozen? The, it's the it's the, it's the f- fruits and vegetables that you should buy um, organic because they're always, like strawberries is one. Like they say, like if you're going to buy only a handful of things organically, strawberries is one. Like bananas, don't worry about it, You're peeling the skin off. So who cares? Strawberries are, you know, if pesticides have been sprayed on them, like you're really, that's not a good fruit to eat. But, so all that is to say, so people get, it's already paralyzing to cook, right? Like people feel intimidated by being in the kitchen. People feel intimidated by like, oh my God, am I giving my kids the right nutrients, the right foods, the right this, the right that. You layer on all the things that are deterrents or scary or intimidating and suddenly you do end up just pulling out the box of macaroni and cheese (laughs) and feeling like shit about yourself while you're doing it. So how many times can we, right.
2: So, um, I am curious about something else. You multitask more than anyone I've ever met because we've talked about the AP. We've talked about your book. We've talked about your blog. Um, we've talked a little bit about your partnerships. They came up. Um, how do you find all those things, and then how do you manage all those things?
3: Um, I have become aware that I have ADD. <laughs> I'm not I'm not a joke. I mean, like, really? like I am somehow... In a weird way, lucky enough, some people have ADD and, like, there's just so much noise, they don't know where to concentrate or they're just constantly distracted. I have a little of that, but I also somehow, like, can have all these things buzzing in simultaneous little compartments. Um, I keep a huge, I keep a lot of lists. I use Sharpie pens in all different colors. And no, they're not color-coded. People are always saying, are your lists color-coded? Because there's all these colors everywhere. How can
2: you have a colored list that's not color-coded? I don't know. I I don't know. Isn't that weird? Yes, I find that weird.
3: But there's nothing, there's no rhyme or reason to it. I mean, I'm I'm like going to pull out something and show you right now. Like, it's just, it's crazy. But having said all that, I, so I keep lots of lists. Um, I try to, like, hire people to help me who do things better than me, like take photographs or, um, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, make sure they... SEO on my blog is green, but anyway, it's just endless <laughs> amounts of lists that go on, and I don't know. I, I juggle things. The most I like having lots of things going on. It does get a little overwhelming. I'm I'm not gonna say that it won't. It does get a little overwhelming. And also, when you work for yourself, there's never ever a minute that you don't feel like you could be working. Right. And I'm a sucker for that. <laughs> I'm, I'm a real, you know. I'm unfortunately like if I have half an hour. I'm re-editing a recipe. I'm coming up with a new recipe. I'm, I'm you know, ordering the stuff for the next photo shoot. I'm,
2: you know. It's not very relaxing. It's not very relaxing. <laughs> <laughs> so you've had the uh, the privilege, really, to be surrounded by extraordinary people your entire life, uh, partly because of the, the writers and the editors. Um, they were part of your extended family. And then the relationships that you have made, um, with other authors, other creators, mm-hmm. as you've gone through your life, who has inspired you the, the most, and what was your biggest takeaway from them?
3: That that's a good question. I mean, I clearly have talked about my dad a lot as an inspirational person who really had like serious vision. I mean, people use words like visionary and genius, and they get bandied about, but that did happen to me. My dad. Um, my mom is also. Um a very talented person she's she's got she's got a really good eye for things, and she also like she also takes the time like where somebody would um sort of put food on a plate and put it out like for a party she would like be the person who'd like have a sprig of rosemary a sprig of sage, and a sprig of thyme like artfully placed on the plate and the plate would like all of a sudden you're like, oh that looks a lot better you know? <laughs> so so that's sort of like that care, and also my parents were also very big hosts. They were very hospitable, and they were very hosty. They loved entertaining, and they loved making people feel welcome in their home. And so that I grew up with, and that has certainly carried over into our lives today. Um, and the, I mean, reask your question, because I feel like I just veered off of your... Well,
2: I, it, the question is, who did you find most inspiring? as a mentor or a friend, and what quality did they bring to that that you either, you know, hope to have yourself or just to share with the listeners, like someone who inspired you and what you learned? I think I think that probably
3: um, the common denominator is sort of this generosity of spirit, right? It's that you you are able to be helpful and inspirational to somebody, and you do it. You don't just gloss over or, you know, put in, put it in, uh, you know, phone it in in some way. So, I mean, again, I'll go back to you, Pam, you know, th- Suzanne, like people who really had expertise and opportunity to share and did, did it. Didn't just phone it in or talk about it or
2: um sort of be like, yeah, let me know if I can help. You know, like that kind of like thing where it's like, that, t- that's actually a pet peeve um, phrase, and it comes, I think, um, actually from the cancer year, which was people would say, like, if there's anything I can do, and you're like, okay, what you can do is never say those words, because I'm not going to tell you what to do. Yeah. Like, either do something, yeah. um, and it's okay if you don't. I mean, I, it's not like I have an expectation, but that notion of not really asking, yeah. but acting, I yes. think, is yes. um So the people compelling. I guess
3: I admire the most are people who are who act, who do things. I think that, um, again, probably to a fault, I am somebody who's sort of like, let's go, let's go, let's go. And I really look to people who make things happen, who, um, you know, whether they may have been given opportunities and connections, they may may not, you know, you, you may not have like been like, oh, I was born in Ethiopia and I came here and made myself into this without anybody's help. You may have had help, but you you took the help, you made something, and you gave the help back. Like, it's just, there's sort of that flow of support, and that's what I admire. And that's what I... Um, I know that I would never have done what I've done on my own, and I hope that I am able to... You're
2: part of a, a great support network because you, indeed yourself, are unbelievably um, supportive and um, and kind. So, with those words, that is this episode of Speaking Broadly. I want to thank. I can't believe how fast that went by, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. Thank you, Katie, for joining me um, and being the first one to break the. Pizza and the Bunker. And um, all of you listeners, I want to thank you for uh, joining us today. I want to thank David Tadashore, amazing engineer, whose hand I can see through the window. Uh, Carlin Thompson, who is my excellent uh, aide. And we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening.